Well, good evening. This is um, the first class in the introduction to the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is simply a word in the Greek, Pentateuchos, which means five-volumed book. Uh, it means that there are five books making one volume. We look at the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as we evaluate them and we study them, we realize that's exactly what they do. They compose one book. There are five volumes, yet one book. Like your Bible uh, is 66 books or volumes, but they're all one. There's a unity. And there's an overarching storyline, and there's an overarching purpose, and there's a thread of common thought and many different themes that all unite the Pentateuch, these five books together. The Jews called these five books the Torah, which means instruction. Throughout the scriptures, such as Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Acts chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, as well as <coughs> excuse me, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, it's called simply the law. Remember Psalm number 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. For he shall be as the root tree, like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And the word law just simply is a good nickname. We sometimes use the word euphemism for these five books of Moses. Notice that. The happy man, the blessed man, the one whose life is a joyful life, and the one who will stand in the judgment, the one who truly prospers is the one who finds himself enjoying the law, finds himself delighting in it and meditating day in and out in it. You might say, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that the Bible expects me to enjoy the book of Numbers a story about a group of people grumbling and griping because they have everything that God wants them to have and they're so blessed and yet they're never satisfied. And that's the truth. Sometimes we look and say, well, that's so boring. And look at Leviticus with all of its rules and dietary regulations and sacrifices and feasts. I mean, it's, it's the great antidote to insomnia. You can't sleep, take two chapters of Leviticus and See how you feel in the morning, you know? In fact, when I first surrendered to preach, uh, I rode one day with an older preacher, and he looked at my Bible. He said, boy, you've been studying. He said, even in Leviticus. And he was just seemingly surprised because I had underlined and made notes in the book of Leviticus. Well, Leviticus is often difficult. But it is a thing that should bring us joy. Uh, we recently um, had a study, many of us, throughout our Sunday school, our Sunday school literature about laws and the laws regarding sacrifices and feasts and how those things pointed to Christ and what a blessing those things are. How enjoyable it is to look at them and find the picture that God gives of our Lord Jesus Christ there. Um, in Luke chapter 24, verses 21 through 27, the books of the law or the Pentateuch are called simply Moses, beginning at Moses and the prophets. He said, chapter, verses 44 and 45 of the same chapter, it's simply called the law of Moses. Throughout the scripture, 
we find that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. Jesus believed it. He testified to it. Uh, the internal writings tell us over and over again through the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy especially that Moses was commanded over and over to write. Joshua records how that Moses wrote the book of the law, the books of the kings and chronicles. Ezra was already scribe and it's referred to as by him as the book written by Moses there as well as in Nehemiah. Daniel recorded the same. You look in um, the book of Acts mentions circumcision. Well, the first time it's mentioned was in Genesis chapter 17. and It's an acknowledgement of the Mosaic authorship of Genesis when you read there as well as Jesus um, commented that Moses gave you circumcision. And so Jesus realized that. And then there's um, John 1 and 17 where John himself said the law was given by Moses. Paul mentioned in Galatians chapter 3 that it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. We know and look and see that Moses was the one who stood and stood between God and man to receive the word of God. Over and over and over we see um, that Moses in the scripture wrote and authored these five books. And if you look through the New Testament for Moses' name, and his name turns up about 80 times in 79 different verses. And many of them, if not most of them, point us to the fact that Jesus and the apostles uphold Moses as having written those five books. Um, Archbishop James Usher was a man and who wrote a huge book called the Chronicles, or Annals rather, of the World. It's a chronological history of the world beginning with creation. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Usher wrote it. You can actually find it on Apple Books. You can find it online in PDF form. You can find it from masterbooks.com or answersingenesis.com in their store or any book I ever referenced. By the way, you can go to used.addall, A-D-D dot I-L-L, I'm sorry, used.addall.com, used.addall.com and find it used there, any book that I ever mentioned. Usher, U-S-S-H-E-R, you can find it in the notes in his Annals of the World, says, here ends, talking about the end of, um, at 451 B.C., here ends the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, containing the history of 2,552 and a half years from the beginning of the world. The book of Joshua begins with the 41st year after the departure of the children of Israel from Egypt. So, Usher, as well. Practically no one questioned the authorship of Genesis through Deuteronomy until about the 17th century. Now, about the 17th century, there was a Dutch man who was, um, interestingly enough, a renegade, apostate Jew, probably was a pantheist, named Benedict or Baruch Spinoza. Spinoza began to speak about the books of Moses and he's trying to return to more of a natural theology and natural law and abandon God, abandon the law of God, and try to make the laws of God and the morals of the Old Testament to be simply one man's guide or one nation's guide for how they should behave, more of a civil code. Spinoza hated God, he hated the Bible, and in his own way he hated morality. And in fact... Spinoza, if you read his life, you can find that 
he stayed generally one step ahead even of the authorities because of the fact that he was contravening blasphemy laws in his day. What about this? Uh, some people look and they say, well, you can see evidence of about four different authors and that it's all combined. There was a Jehovistic author who used the name of Jehovah, which in the King James Version is very well done. It's spelled Lord, and it's all caps. There was another one who's an Elohistic. He used the name of for God of Elohim, which simply speaks of the strong one. There was another one who was a Deuteronomic. He was kind of later on after all of them. There was another one who was a priestly, and he wrote more about sacrifices and law codes and such as that. And somebody somewhere after the Babylonian captivity decided he would take all those writings, put them together and call it the five books of Moses and call it the law of God. And that had never happened and never existed until then, except in piecemeal form. Now, if you stop and think, that's really um, a rejection. Many evangelicals, by the way, People who say they're Bible believers and conservatives still embrace this. But it's a rejection of the inspiration of God. It's actually saying that when Jesus and the apostles and Ezra and others said that Moses wrote it, that they were actually in error. That it was nothing more than a big hoax that somebody pulled over on Israel for some reason and somehow or another they were gullible enough to believe it. What we have to do is ask the question for now. If the Bible is our authority in matters of faith and practice, must we not bow to its authority when it tells us that Moses wrote the Pentateuch? Must we not take the testimony of Scripture itself that tells us of the early date of the Pentateuch, that it actually was written when the Bible says it was written, during the life and days of Moses? We should remember also that in 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1 through 28, that Josiah, a good king, that in his days, as he was having the temple of God repaired for dis because it had fallen into disrepair through disuse and neglect, that they come to him one day and they say, we have found this book. We found this book of the law. And we want to bring it to you for you to read it. Then it got lost. And so, yeah, it probably, throughout the... Um, Times even soon afterward, not too many years afterward, when Israel went into the Babylonian captivity, it was probably lost then in a great way. Except for one thing. You read in Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 19 through 22, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 17 through 23, that Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels, the furnishings, the general articles, as well as the treasures of the house of God with him to Babylon. Now, he didn't simply take the greatest monetary treasures, material treasures as far as things of great value, but also things that were of value concerning wisdom and religion and culture. And we can know that he did that because when you look at the people that he surrounded himself with, he took the best and the brightest out of the Jews. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah fed them, trained them to be his advisors. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who not only conquered kingdoms, but he practiced assimilation. 
And he took the best things from those kingdoms and made them part of his kingdom. Daniel was never, until the reign of Darius, ever forbidden to pray. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were never forbidden the practice of their Jewish religion, except for the fact of the time that Nebuchadnezzar made the big image and commanded everyone to worship him. Daniel chapter 4 records the fall of Nebuchadnezzar and the rise again of Nebuchadnezzar after seven years. Nebuchadnezzar was converted to worship the great I Am. And so when Israel goes into the Babylonian captivity, we have every reason to believe they had the law of God with them and took it with them. That instead of it being some post-captivity document that somebody wrote to guide Israel, that it was already in existence. Look, for example, at Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. God there commanded Jeremiah to write concerning the prophecies and the futures of Israel and Babylon, which lets us know that that book itself of Jeremiah's writings would be confirmed, would be rather preserved and kept throughout the time of the Babylonian captivity. The books of the kings from 2 Chronicles 35, verses 25 through 27, presents the preservation of the books of kings throughout the captivity and the book of the Lamentations that was written by Jeremiah. When they were in the captivity, Daniel chapter 9 speaks of the writings of the books of the law in verses 11 through 13. They were with them. Daniel was able to study the law of God. One reason why that Daniel was able to advise Nebuchadnezzar well and wisely was he had all of the Bible that God had given him in that time. When you come to the book of Ezra, and you see post-captivity, the um, remnant returning to Israel. What do you find in chapter 7, verses 6 and 11? But that Ezra was a ready scribe in the word of the Lord. He was a student. He read those documents. He copied those documents. He studied those documents. In Nehemiah chapter 8, he and others stood up for days upon end teaching the very law of God to the people in Jerusalem. It may be that being a ready scribe that some of the things that people look at and say, well, thus and such name was changed at thus and such time. And it uses the later name in the Pentateuch at this particular place. That could be that Ezra updated and edited the place names. Sometimes you read that this place was previously called thus and such. For example, Bethel. And it was previously called what? Was, I think it was. Where did that come from? Moses could have written it or Ezra could have edited. The later times and all the lands of Canaan, as the names were changed, they could have been changed and written in Moses' day or Ezra could have edited them. There would have been nothing wrong with Ezra having done so had God led him to do so. But we know that Moses wrote them. God preserved them. The people were used to keep them, and they had them. Ezra 3, 2, verses 2 and 4, as well as chapter 6, verse 18, shows they had the law of God. We also know from the experience in Jeremiah chapters 36 through 37 that Jeremiah's scroll that was cut up to pieces and burned by the king, that God had a way of preserving his word. He simply had it rewritten so that it would not be destroyed. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, that there wasn't a jot or a tittle, a yod or just a little breathing mark, a little piece of 
like a dot over an I or a cross on a T. Not one of them would perish from the law of God until everything was fulfilled. Jesus promised concerning his word itself in chapter 24, verse 35 of Matthew, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Jesus being the eternal son of God, our creator, the great I am of Israel, has told us his word abides forever. The psalmist in Psalm 119 mentions over and over again as well of the eternal state of the word of God. We also know from history that while during the Babylonian captivity that the synagogues were created, they began to establish places to meet together as a Jewish people for the study and the teaching of God's word. They had God's word then. So we can rest assured that the Pentateuch is indeed the book of Moses, the books of Moses. It was preserved and kept through the Babylonian captivity and that it was afterwards returned to Israel when they came home from the captivity. Notice that I mentioned Job and we're going to look at Job as well during this time. One thing that we can do is we can find... Um, <clears throat> Job mentioned in Genesis chapter 46 and verse 13 as a son of Issachar and a grandson of Jacob. Uh, both Ezekiel and James mentioned him and he was not a fictional figure, but he was a genuine historical person. We find Job probably living toward the um, latter years of Genesis. We're going to place him in order at the end of Genesis just for um, historical reference and quickly look at him as well. But I wanted us to introduce all of these things, especially these um, one big issue of the documentary or multiple authorship hypothesis that says that the books of the law were from many, many years after Israel came from Babylonian captivity or soon after. And it would, they happened several hundred years after Moses because it needs to be debunked. It needs to be rejected. You see, there was a procession of things that happened in Europe that I want to tell you about for just a moment. And I want you to think about these things historically and logically. So in about the 17th century, you have Baruch Spinoza, or Benedict Spinoza. And he begins to cast doubt upon the authorship of Genesis. You come to the 18th century, and there are a couple of things that coincided. There was... Uh, a man named Julius Wellhausen, a German, who wrote extensively about this JEDP, or document theory, or documentary hypothesis, guessing about, um, based on figments of his imagination, the um, authorship of the Pentateuch. At the same time, in England, you had a man named Charles Darwin writing the origin of the species, speaking about evolution. Now Darwin grew up in a climate where the Word of God informed everyone's thinking. The Word of God was, the culture was informed by the Word of God. Practically everyone had some affiliation with the church. And yet there was a great rejection of the Word of God in Darwin's day. Darwin's desire was to undermine the moral authority of the Pentateuch, it seems. And so he wanted to try to do away with 
the Genesis creation account, and he presented his idea of evolution, and it was a monkeys-to-man ideal. It was presenting that men came from amoeba to some sort of little swimming creature to some sort of ape chimpanzee sort of creature to uh, some sort of upright man-like caveman till it finally he stands completely upright and lo and behold he's a man and people are still doing that today there are actually people who say that Adam did not literally exist they call themselves conservative Bible believing Christians the problem is is that they do something conservative Bible-believing Christians have no right to do. They reject the authority of the Word of God. You come into the 20th century, and Germany is eaten up with liberal biblical scholarship. Believe it or not, greatly in the United States in the 1920s and 30s, the United States was eaten up with liberal biblical scholarship. In the 1920s, you had the divisions among the large denominations, and even in the Southern Baptist Convention, you had the fundamentalist, modernist controversy. I hope that we can look and take a, a, set, a semester to look at the history of fundamentalism and the doctrines of fundamentalism to see that that's really not an ugly word. Um, during that time, there was a man named J. Gresham Macon who was a professor amongst the um, Presbyterians, and he wrote a book that's aptly titled Christianity and Liberalism. And the reason was, was liberalism had rejected biblical Christianity. They were not liberal Christians. They could not have been a Christian at all because they would not accept the miraculous. They would not accept blood atonement. They would not accept the literal bodily and visible resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, while the Germans had their eugenics programs going on, where they were um, dealing with racial issues, especially toward the Jews. We were sterilizing black peoples and Indians, black people and Indians in the United States of America as well. And a lot of that was a result of the belief of Darwinism and the rejection of biblical authority. And there were people, there were a couple of brothers by the last name of Neighbor or Niebuhr, Reinhold and Richard were very, very influential liberal scholars who praised, greatly praised and loved Adolf Hitler. Here's the thing. Adolf Hitler took the rejection of biblical authority, believed the philosophy of a syphilitic madman named Nietzsche, and then accepted and rejected received and embraced Darwin's racism. Because, see, evolution is inherently racist because it tells us and presents to us the picture in Darwin's writings that we arose through a progression, that black people are a step above monkeys or chimps, that yellow-skinned people probably a step above them, and Darwin, I mean, rather, Hitler believed that the white-skinned blonde-haired, blue-eyed person was at the top of the evolutionary ladder and he wanted to make a superman through his breeding. But look what it did. Look to this day what it is still doing. And it is a logical progression that says embracing Darwinism, 
rejecting biblical authority, believing the documentary hypothesis, that it just logically follows that you're going to be a racist, that you're going to be bigoted. There will never, ever, ever be a time that it is right to reject the authority of the Bible. And look where believing the documentary hypothesis led the German people. Look what their scholars did for them. Look what their preachers did for them. And today, it's all over the United States of America. Seminaries are saturated with it. They're teaching and preaching this foolish idea that Moses did not write, that he borrowed from various ancient um, pantheistic or paganistic writings that he borrowed from here, he borrowed from yonder, he borrowed from Hammurabi's code. And, well, he actually didn't do it. There were these other guys that did it, and somebody one day put it all together and passed it off on the Jewish people. And what do you have? You have a book that you reject. And while you reject the book, you reject the people of the book. But really, when you reject that book, you reject the God of the book. Do you remember what the first thing was that happened when the authority of the Word of God was rejected? It was when the serpent came and says, Yea, hath God said? No, that wasn't what he meant. And so let's remember that this is extremely important and we should never embrace it. We shouldn't take it lightly. We should discard it with as much force as possible but not hold to this foolish, Christ-rejecting, Bible-rejecting, Spirit-rejecting documentary hypothesis. Moses did write it. It is revelation of God. It starts off saying, in the beginning, God. Over and over and over you find God. One of the things we're going to look at when we see Exodus is how that God reveals himself in Exodus that over... Seventy times God speaks of my book, my words, or my people, or whatever. God lets us know the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That we're all His. And so you find God revealed from beginning to end, making Himself known to His people, making Himself known to His creatures, making Himself known to the world. You find Him creating man, creating family, creating a nation, creating a unique nation. You find him working to bring the Christ into the world throughout the Pentateuch. And we're going to look at some of that, much of that next week. And I trust it will be a blessing to us. I'm going to upload these notes. That's going to be all we're going to deal with at this time. Uh, we'll make preparations to let you know um, plans for an assignment. One assignment for this class. No final exam. Just one uh, paper to write to uh, show that you've studied your way through it and gained some thoughts from it. But for now... We're going to cease with this, and Lord willing, we'll see you next week. Thank you for watching and listening. Thank you for enrolling.